Hey, Jeff Johnston here with the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, special guest today, Rocky Heron. Uh, Rocky, you and I were talking before I hit the record button, and we have a lot of uh, deep diving topics to get into today. So with that, uh, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing well. And thanks for having me on your show. Good, good. Um, yeah, you and I met this summer when I was on our tour, and uh, I had you sit in our panel discussion uh, down in um, uh, Carlsbad. Carlsbad, right? Yeah. I get Carlsberg and Carlsbad confused. Carlsbad, California. Carlsbad, California. And um was really uh, intrigued with your uh, advocacy and your passion. And the length of time you've been doing this is is amazing because I've been kind of thrust into this mental health advocacy space, you know, three to four years ago. You've been doing this for three decades. So um, maybe a little bit about you and your why and how, how you kind of ended up in where you are today. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'm a local San Diego guy and, uh, I went, you know, I came from privilege and I private education and I got into USC law school and I had a, you know, I had a good traditional successful career in front of me, but I was 22 and, and felt like I needed to take an adventure. So I put an application in with DEA and incredibly DEA hired me at 23. Mm. Um, so I became a DEA special agent and I thought I would do that for three or four years and then, you know, go back to law school, and maybe become a prosecutor, but I, I love the job. So I, I spent 31 years uh, as a DEA special agent working the border here in San Diego, down in South America, uh, spent 10 years investigating doctors and, and prescription drug abuse here in San Diego. Mm. And I got into the education side of things in 2007 uh, when I discovered my own daughters weren't getting any organized drug prevention education in the schools. Hmm. So your background, you went kind of into the trenches right away. <laughs> Um, you know, being a DEA agent and, and working in those areas, you got kind of thrust into that immediately. Um, anything other than anything very personal happened to you that kind of made you really passionate about what you do now? Or is it more just your length of time being in this area? No, absolutely. I, in 2007, uh, I just I was assigned to the prescription drug abuse unit in San Diego. And I was the first special agent assigned to that unit, which, which had previously been more of an auditor, auditing and regulatory uh, unit. And uh, we discovered how bad the OxyContin abuse problem was here in San Diego. So for the first time in my career, I began to deal with the population in addiction. Because when you're working a traditional drug investigation, chasing cartels, you're not dealing with people in addiction. Right. The cartels don't work with people in addiction because they're not reliable. But when, when I started investigating doctors and pharmacists and veterinarians, I was I needed to deal with their their addicted patients, you know, because those were my witnesses. And so that was the first time I discovered that you know, the extent of the pain that that one person in addiction can cause. And then simultaneously, I discovered my daughters weren't getting any education in schools. And so that motivated me to, you know, develop my own little presentation for my daughters and their their classmates, in which I never intended to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. But uh, by word of mouth, I got more invitations and more invitations. And for the next, you know, fifteen years of my career. I began to see and believe that education was a more valuable use of my time and efforts than, than law enforcement. And I believe very much in the law enforcement mission. But when you look at the reality of the synthetic drugs today, law enforcement's got a huge challenge in front of it. And for reasons I don't completely understand, uh, large audiences of teenagers do listen to me. And so I, I retired last year and uh, I work now for the San Diego County Office of Education as their alcohol and other drug ambassador which is a job completely designed around getting out in front of students with a, a comprehensive drug prevention message. Yeah. I, 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 I go, I go down different rabbit holes. It seems like it's like, you know, I'll follow one person that's a really big harm reduction advocate. And then I'll follow someone else that says we need to have stronger borders and we need to have tougher crime laws against, um, against drugs and so forth. And it's just like, to me, so new to this, I, I, meet someone like you, it's been doing this for 30 years. It's like, what do you think is the answer? I mean, if, and this is my, my criticism with education is that, you know, and I go back to my analogy I use in my book is, you know, today more than ever, hands down, no argument here. We know more about diet and weight loss than we've ever known in the history of mankind. Everything we eat has a label, you know, you can Google products, stuff. I mean, but we're the heaviest industrial country in the world and we're getting, we're getting bigger. So, we could have more education and knowledge on eating bad, but it's not, it just seems like it's not working. It's like an inverse relationship. The smarter we get on weight loss and diet, the fatter we get as a country. So 
I think there's an example where I don't know if more education on losing weight is going to help us at some point, people just have to do it. So how do, how does that, re- yeah, but there's, there's a, yeah, how does that relate to uh, drug education and alcohol education and all these things that we seem to be really hyper-focused on, which I think we have to do. I just question if that's the only, only thing, you know? Well, I'm not, I'm never advocating that education is the only thing we have to do. Um, but when it comes to drug, drug abuse, we're not even trying. And, and I argue, I, I believe, and I argue that our drug abuse problem is really a, a symptom of our much bigger untreated mental health yeah. crisis. And, and of course we have to ask ourselves, where did that mental health crisis come from? So for me, having been staring at the drug problem for, for more than three decades, it's, we have a society in, in decay and the family is breaking yeah. down. Um, we're not raising our kids properly. Education results are, are plummeting. Um, and we're not, we don't want to address it. We're, we're a spoiled, you know, lazy country, unfortunately, and we want quick fixes Mm, mm -hmm. and, you know, the obesity problem and our education problem and our drug abuse problem are not quick fixes. It took us decades to get here. And and yet we are not talking coherently as a society about solving any of those problems. And I talk about the phones and one of the big points in my, in my presentations today to the students and the parents is, you know, shame on us. We threw these devices at our kids that give them unfiltered access to the, every piece of information on the mm. planet without any real preparation or information. And we expect this not to have an impact on our kids. It's insanity. Uh, so it is cruel to the kids. And so it's same with the drugs. The drugs today are so much stronger and, and cheaper and easier to get. And we're not even warning the kids. And, and that, But the difference between you know drug and alcohol abuse and so many other self-destructive and, and addictive behaviors is... The, the chemicals actually change the perception of the brain of the person. Yeah. You know, someone who's a sex addict can is is still mentally present to see, hopefully, the consequences of the behavior. Um, someone who's a gambling right. addict, they can't maybe they can't control their behavior, but they're they're mentally functioning, so they can have a chance to see the damage. But someone who lives in in functional alcoholism, or someone who gets hooked on oxycontin or fentanyl or meth or or coke. Or, or super potent THC, those chemicals actually change their ability to perceive that the harm mm-hmm. from the behavior. And so my belief is that if we change the understandings of our population about the consequences of drug use early, um, that some percentage of the people we educate will not initiate drug use. Hmm. I love it. And that's yeah. kind of my target audience. I, I'm not getting people, if I'm talking to a school audience and there's kids in there who are already using fentanyl, I don't think they're going to stop because they heard me. Right. I, I'm trying to get some of those other kids in the audience to realize I, I don't want to go down this road and, and, and lose control over my life. So that's, you know, and, and today, as you very well know, the drugs available don't give people uh, much room for mistakes. There's no second So that's chance. really, yeah. you know, every year that the drug problem worsens, my passion to get in front of kids increases. Well, I love it because I think you and I are on the same side of the fence there because initially I went down this angry dad path, you know, and, you know, eradicate fentanyl, weapon of mass destruction, higher borders, you know, and go after China. Then I thought, you know, maybe instead of working at the supply side, so much of this, maybe we ought to go back to the demand side, go back to the prehab versus the rehab, go back to the intervening prior to the intervention. And so I completely agree with what you just said. And that's kind of where I'm building my, my, um, living on the turd initiatives and my projects is geared towards, um, those that have yet had these issues, knowing that these issues are coming. It's that mental health train they're looking over their shoulder and they see this train coming at them. Um, so, well, look, I call it. I'm calling it. A, I'm calling it a perfect storm now, Jeff. Yeah. Right. So we have the CDC came out with their data earlier in this year. Forty four percent of American teenagers self-identifies persistently sad and hopeless. I saw that, and, and that did not create. I mean, I talk about a lazy country. Almost half of the teenagers in the United States of yeah. America, the richest, most powerful country in history, yeah. self-identifies persistently sad and hopeless, and that did not cause a, a reaction. As a society, we're like, oh, that's 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 unfortunate, and then we don't do anything differently. Right. So you have this, more kids who are more anxious, more depressed, more lonely, more isolated, more bullied than ever before, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the phones, they're less capable of communicating. I make this joke in my school presentations. I'll look at a group of five hundred middle schoolers and I'll say, "Hey guys, I did this really weird thing when I was your age. I would talk to my friends," <laughs> and the kids laugh and the teachers laugh and everyone because everyone even they understand that that's not happening anymore. Right. So. Kid, a lot of our kids aren't even learning how to communicate with each other. And then social media has taught these, these kids. Any teenager today has grown up with a social media message where you don't share ugly things. You don't share sad things. You, you put a beauty filter on. So my argument is we have many more emotionally hurting kids, right? 
who are less capable of communicating with each other and less willing to communicate with each other. So where's that pain going? It's not going anywhere. It's being carried around inside. And then they go to the party with these widely available and incredibly cheap toxic drugs. Somebody hands them the drug and the tragic moment is the drug works. And what I mean by the drug working is it get, it allows that child to escape temporarily from the pain. There's a kid discovers there's a chemical escape. And once some percentage of our kids discover that they're going to go back to it because not the therapy, the counseling, if they're getting it, uh, is, is time consuming and hard and, and taking a drug is quick. And so that's really and, where, you know, I'm fighting. I don't, I want kids to understand what could happen to them if they make that first choice. And, you know, we know the prefrontal cortex is so key in all this. And for, um, people out there that aren't familiar and I'm not by any means, um, a neuroscientist that can explain this thoroughly, but basically it, it involves a lot of the reasoning and the emotions and the, the, uh, the, the thing, opinions and things that you form at a young age. And I see each year they, or not each year, but it seems like they keep pushing it back. Now they say 26 is like the age where the prefrontal cortex is fully formed. So yeah, you're right. We're talking to kids that are 12, 13. There's a confusion for them of autonomy versus dependency as my friend Patrick Moore always says and and they think they're in control but their brain is 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 you know not lying to them but their brain is not fully developed yet so based on the data they have of course they think they're controlled because their brain isn't fully developed and if you're putting in toxic chemicals on top of that let alone how confusing it is at that age with no drugs or alcohol and then you're right you throw in bullying you throw in um i know when i'm I'm 56 rocky and I, I won't peg you how old you are but i think you and i are around the same age um suicide wasn't an option for us in high school and we just didn't think about it it, it wasn't it, no one in my school took their own life and now it's like now it's like an option and kids see other kids that have done it and even though it's a horrendous yeah, option you're cutting out. Yeah, I think that's why Jeff, I lost the last five seconds or so there. Yeah, I think we're okay. We'll just push through it because um, uh, there's a there's a local download that is a better quality. But um, anyway, we'll just try to keep pushing through this. But going back to, um, you know, suicide, again, for example, is one area of the mental health issue that we're trying to work with. But it seems like when I was younger, that just we didn't think about that. And now it's like actually an option for kids. Um, but we know more about it too. You think that would be less of an option because we know more. And that's where my confusion lies. Well, but, but again, I, society continues in, you know, this is a strong statement, right? But our society yeah. continues to decay. The families continue to break down. Our social affiliations are weaker and weaker. So, you know, we can try to intervene, you know, in a, in a one-off manner with kids, but the, the world they live in, the pressures they're under are increasing. I mean, I, 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 you know, every adult we talk to, any of us would agree that we've changed our kids with the phones. We all would say, oh yeah, yeah. We, our kids are different because of the smartphones. What right. not one of us can say with any certainty at all is how much and how severely we've changed the kids. It's gonna take social scientists decades to unpack, you know, what happened to this generation of kids that we provide these phones to. So it's, it, if, if you're into drug abuse, any kid today, for this, the, a 10-year-old with a smartphone, has access to every bit of information on the planet about drug use. And there's horrible right. websites out there right. run by PhDs promoting drug abuse. Right. Pornography. We're not talking about what porn is doing to our little kids. Right. Uh, and, and that's a shame because right. I can't imagine what I would have done at 10 right. if I had access to, yep. to a phone. Yep. Um, the kids who are into self-harming, kids who are into suicide, they can, they can go down a rabbit hole in the phones. And, and God knows what they're finding. And so that's really, I think, that what's underlying a lot of the increases in these, in these tragic outcomes, I believe, are, are kids who are just lost. And they find, in their minds, they find something in the Internet that resonates with them and pulls them in directions. And the, nobody knows. The parents don't know. The friends don't know. The kids are not sharing that with their friends. Another statement I'll make in the schools that, and that gets the kids They'll say, you guys are going on places on the phones that you're seeing things that you're not telling anybody about. And I get this huge audience of kids that kind of look at me with this guilty look. look like, oh, they got me. Well, of course <laughs> yeah. they are. Yeah, yeah, of course they are. You yeah. know, but we're not, as a society, Jeff, we're not willing to stop and go, wait a second. We owe it to the kids to stop focusing on all this extraneous crap and, and deal with the reality. And, you know, bringing it back to the, the drug topic, I'm baffled. I mean, there's tons of, I'm all for harm reduction. I'm all for treatment. Yes, 
Let's try to save the people that have put themselves in this path. I'm all for law enforcement. That was me for 30 years. Right. Awesome. More law enforcement. But the area we're not even talking about is, is a massive national prevention campaign. And that's where I'm baffled. Because when if we look at the cigarette model, as a nation in 1960, or approximately, you know, somebody said, let's, let's take the cigarette problem seriously. And we did. And you right. and I growing up, we got regular education in school yeah. about how nasty cigarettes never were. smoked. I never smoked. And after 30 or 40 years, Jeff, we won that fight. Right. Kids in our country today do not want cigarettes. Right. They want vaping. Now, the tobacco companies, you know, their, <laughs> yeah. their solution was to get kids hooked on tools. Right. And they're vaping. Right. But, but I'm just saying, but we, right. there is a model. There is a yep. model with education. And yet today with a drug problem, which is so horrible, nobody that I can see, nobody serious and nobody consistently at the national level or even the state levels is talking about, you know what? I don't know if it's going to work, but we got to try to educate the kids in the schools. And I don't see how we can even claim that we're taking this problem seriously as a society if we're not including prevention education in the equation. Well, you look at the decay and you're so right. I mean, kids look at their parents and if mom and dad are coming home and getting drunk and mom and dad are on their phone trying, you know, kids are trying to talk to them. mom and dad are on their phone looking at their, their betting websites or looking at Twitter and reading things about Elon Musk and Donald Trump and they're watching Fox News and I mean, parents are just as distracted, if not more than kids. And it's difficult for kids to work through their personal issues if their mom and dad are, are themselves distracted and, and depressed and, and angry with each other. And, you know, kids will emul emulate their parents. And so, yeah, if you have a strong house where they have some ground rules about technology and things like that, you know, um, I it's like I'm. I think I know what the problems are. And I think you do too. You've been very eloquent about stating some of the concerns we have. So how do we pivot and take these problems and, and make them our, make them the solution? You know, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone said, you think you're afraid of your problems? Wait till you see the solutions. And what he was implying was therapy and Adderall and all this crap. We just start throwing at kids and that's our solution to the problem. There's gotta be more, man. What, what are we missing? There's gotta be more. Well, I think I think honestly, I'm you know I'm in the education world now, but I, I really think we need to rethink our education programs. And if kids are not getting, you know, huge numbers of kids are not getting what we would consider, you know, basic social skills in the home environments, then we need to start teaching them in the schools. We need to teach them a lot of social supports in, in a in a coherent manner. And this is something I'm hoping over time we can develop here in San Diego is a series of interventions in the schools from very young age that talk about these issues and, and, and if fortify the kids' communication skills and, and help them develop the interpersonal skills and help them see through the lies of the social media. And then certainly to help them understand that however bad your problems are, the moment you start using drugs to, to medicate or compensate, they're just all going to yeah. get worse. And, and one of my daughters, I have three daughters, and one of my daughters has some emotional challenges. And I, I lived, in, I live still, but not so much now, but I, I did live for years in terror that one of her friends would offer her an oxy or, or a fentanyl pill and that she would discover that that chemical right. helped her in a way that nothing right. else did. Because I knew that what, once my daughter, if, if even my own daughter had mm -hmm. discovered that, how am I going to get her to mm -hmm. stop? Because in those moments of pain and she's seeking an escape, now her brain, that there's a, a, call, a siren call mm -hmm. from the brain. So again, you know, I, I, my goal with my education programs is not stop all drug abuse. That's a fantasy. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Right. Uh, and I also use, this is my metric, right? Of every hundred kids that I've spoken to, you know, and I've talked to 167,000 now, which I, for me is just a good start. Um, 10 of them in my audience don't need to, don't need the message. They're just not going to use, you know, for whatever reason, right? 10, 10 of those kids are, are gonna, never going to listen to me. You know, they're just gonna have to learn the hard way. Um, I'm fighting for the hearts and minds of the 80% in the middle, right? The kids who, you know, are just not sure they're being pulled by the social pressures, the peer pressures. They're curious because, you know, the culture still promotes drug experimentation. I'm fighting to get those kids to understand what could happen to them mm -hmm. uh, if they make this terrible mistake. And my talks are very strong. They're very powerful. Some schools will tell me, Rocky, we can't have you come in because you're going to trigger some of our kids. Yeah. And my standard yeah. response is, if I don't trigger every kid in the audience, then I failed. Yeah. And it, there's a big study came out on triggering. I just saw it on, on social media. I think it was on Twitter. It was an article that um, about, the, about the negative effect of telling people about a trigger warning. It's almost like when, when uh, Tipper Gore put the explicit uh, uh, lyrics uh, labels on the heavy metal albums in the 80s, 
and thinking that that would warn parents, but all it did is just tell kids which albums to buy. <laughs> I was one of them. Yeah, right. well, <laughs> I, I was had, one I had, of them. I would go look. I, had, I would go look for the labels that said explicit warnings, and I would buy all those albums. And I'm like, the adults don't get it. They're telling me what not to do, and that's that's my invitation to do it. You know. No, right. Of course, we got to be very careful. Now, one, I'll tell you, I have a personal story. So, uh, some years ago, a local school district had me come in and talk to all their fifth graders, right? And a lot of people think that my message is way too powerful for fifth graders, but but certain school districts, looking at the reality their kids live in, want this strong message at that grade level. So, I went to about half a dozen elementary schools in that school district, and the first five went great. Kids took the whole message and they cry a little bit because I show addicted babies. And, you know, it's I show right. some sad things because I want them to learn this emotionally. Right. And I went the, the last elementary school I went to, the principal stood up in front of the class and said to the kids exactly what she said. Now, if you if you feel emotional about something Rocky talks about, you know, the counselors are waiting for you outside. And, you know, the first time at the first moment, my presentation got a little emotional. A couple of kids started crying and walked out. And then it was like this massive chain reaction. And about half the kids ended up walking out of the, the presentation because the, the principal had given them this, this, this permission to leave. Oh, And gotcha. so I, I felt terrible as a presenter because the kids were all starting to cry. But the only, the only difference between that presentation and the other five that I had done in the same community was that the principal had said to the kids, hey, if you get emotional, you know, it's okay if you, if you leave. Right. And so and, and the, 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 my argument against my argument against. The people who say, well, we don't want our kids to be emotionally impacted by your message is, well, then you're leaving them totally unprepared. Right. And so when they're at that party or at the friend's house and or whenever somebody comes up and offers them this deadly drug, they're not prepared. Right. And I used to try to win, win over everybody. I don't anymore. Um, I've got a number, large number of school districts here in San Diego County that are all over my work. They're programming big grade level assemblies for me. And, and, and so I work with the people who get what I'm trying to do. Right. And the school districts that, that think I'm too harsh or this is not appropriate or age appropriate. OK, fine. Right. You know, then you will do something or nothing for your kids. So, uh, you know, and I, I don't worry about what the social scientists say about what I do. I worry about what the people running the schools right. and living with the kids feel about the impact of my work. I, you know, I, the last couple of years, I've really been sitting back trying to dissect all this and think about mental wellness for specifically Gen Z. That's the generation that we're probably geared at you and me. Um, basically like nine and 10 up to about 26. That's statistically where Gen Z sits. And, you know, I think I kept asking myself, okay, let's say we eradicated fentanyl. Didn't exist anymore. No alcohol on the planet. So we took away some of these things that, that our generation, you know, the baby boomers are looking at Gen Z from a lens from a baby boomer. And, and you look at the Gen Z statistics, Rocky, they are surprisingly different than what the assumptions are from, from the baby boomers. And I'll give you one example. Um, and I'm a financial advisor. You know, that's what I did for 32 years. That's my background. I met plenty of rich people that were depressed and miserable and alcoholics because their relationship was, with money was dysfunctional. Um, Gen Z is the single worst generation for financial literacy. Number one, worst, worst generation. Number one cause of divorce is money either not enough or too much. Okay. So here's from a society. That's an opportunity we have to go to Gen Z, educate them on financial relationships with wealth and with money, not just making more, but giving away more as they get older with the, with their, their legacy planning and things like that. And so as I start thinking about how we can design programs for kids, we ought to be looking at the whole person concept as well, not just what they're putting in their body, you know, how well they're sleeping at night. Are they going to the gym? You know, if you look in the mirror as a 17 year old, or let's say you graduate college, so let's say you're 22 and you feel great. You don't drink, you don't do drugs. You, you don't, you eat healthy, but you can't make your car payment. You can't make your rent payment. You know, that that's a, that's a layer of anxiety and stress that's coming for these kids that we're not preparing for. So one thing I'm trying to do in, in our presentations and our focus is more on on a little bit bigger perspective on mental wellness. Um, and the other thing is, I think that's an opportunity we're missing too, is showing and teaching kids how to develop meaning and purpose in their life. Uh, and that's not the same as religion because you can be a Catholic and have no purpose. Um, so you can be spiritual and have no purpose. So, I mean, there's an opportunity here, I think as advocates, Rocky, multifaceted approach that we could have on these kids is to teach them, to show them, to help them 
you know, build this, this mental health plan for them that encompasses many aspects of the quality of well-being. Um, but again, in a 45 minute presentation at a school, we don't have the time to cover all these things, but I think there's an opportunity. I think it's on the table. I think we need to start looking at these things differently because like I said, if what we were doing was working, um, schools wouldn't be calling you regularly to come in and speak at their assemblies if they were satisfied with what was happening right now. Um, what's your thoughts on maybe broadening the scope and looking at this from a little bit wider perspective, especially if you look at the statistics of Gen Z, um, which I spent a lot of time under the hood looking, it's, it's alarming. They're, they're the least religious uh, uh, generation. They're the most spiritual. So there's, there's, a big, big, there's a big gap in how we define that. And again, if you talk to most baby boomers, they seem to be more on the religious end and less spiritual. And we're fighting against Gen Z, who seems to be more spiritual and less religious. So I don't know. I just very, I'm very, I'm very interested in the dynamics of of all these moving parts. Uh, you know, I just thought I'd fill it out there and see what your thoughts are on, on on all that. That's a that's a big question, but have you put some thought to those type of things? Well, yeah. Well, what you just said is in alignment with what I'm saying. I, I believe we need to re, re, redesign education, and we need to give kids those social supports. Understand finance. Understand taxes. Understand compound right. interest. Understand, you know, the, the the all the false meaning that's out there in the media now. And, and, the, the, and again, all these people. I mean, one of the messages I tell the kids is, you know, you're the first generation that's ever been exposed to everything through the mm. phones, and you need to understand that there's many people out there trying to take advantage right. of you through the right. phones. And no one's preparing you. You're having to make your you're having to make your own decisions. And so that that pushing the kids out there in this no man's land of exposing them to everything unfiltered all the time uh, with all these toxic influences and then expecting them to end up healthy is insane. So do we but our country, do we del- our country doesn't want to ha- our country doesn't want to have that conversation. We- I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, but even in the face, this is where I've been staring right. at the schools. My work is getting into right. schools. And I've been trying to do that for 15 years. And it's still hard to get into some schools with the death numbers and the addiction mm-hmm. numbers and the schools themselves identifying substance abuse is number one. It's still hard to get an hour. Right. So what you're talking about is awesome. But if I can't even right. get an hour <laughs> yeah. to talk about the drug problem, then we are a yeah. long ways away from giving kids those broader social supports that you just Okay, mentioned. so let us let me play devil's advocate. So do we just delay giving kids phones or do we just take their phones away at certain times of the day? Or do we set in, do we have apps where there's programs that can shut their phones down? I mean, if we've identified the problem, that's great. I Everyone agrees. But what's what's the fix? Specifically, phones now. I, I, education, information. In, in the, there's no, there's no perfect right. solution, right? There's no perfect solution, but I, it's cruel. Again, it's cruel. I think it's cruel how we're not preparing kids to understand the, what happens when they use drugs. I do too. I do. Too. Right? I just think it's cruel. It's as a society, we're just leaving these kids out yeah. there to, to you go, good luck. Right. You go figure it out for yourself, right. right? The same thing with the phones. I mean, I think the phones are causing. If if we really step back. I mean, obviously, the death from fentanyl and stuff is it's it's just it's uh-huh. hideous, right? But the the but but one I refuse to talk just about fentanyl. Uh, yeah, me too. Because me I talk too. about yep. drugs are destroying a whole right. lot of lives. Yes, we focus on right. the death, but but I you know your wife struggled right. with alcoholism and that causes a yep. lot of pain. And so drug use from people who don't die causes massive uh-huh. pain, and we're not talking about it. So it it's just. Again, we, as a society, I think I don't know when the magic moment is, if there is yeah. one, where we say, "Okay, enough's enough. Our kids are too wounded. We need to go back and come, like completely revisit how we raised them." But um, in the meantime, I'm just trying to get kids to stop putting themselves in the path of self. I'm happy you brought that up, Rocky, because as a parent who's lost a child to fentanyl and you know, lost my wife to alcohol, it would be tempting for me to focus on the death statistics. And when I went around the country this summer, my, my talk, and, and you saw it, I said 800 Americans a day die from alcohol, suicide, and overdose. It's 822 now. So just since this summer I've been around, it's now went from 800 a day to 822,000 a day, or 822 a day. And so, but that's the death statistics. There's more death, there's more destruction in a family there's more families have been destructed to death has not entered the door. Let me say it that way. You know, th- those are in the millions. Those are in the millions. So you don't have to have death come in to destroy a family. 
Matter of fact, just the opposite. There's more people that don't have death that have destruction in their family than they, than they, um, than don't. Um, so I think as an advocate, I need to be careful to just always talk about the deaths because kids will think, well, if I don't die, then I won't have any issues. Well, no, the reality is show me a successful gambling addict. Show me a successful alcoholic. Show me a successful liar. Show me someone successful that eats pizza every day. I mean, you could go down the line. Um, and, and I think it's pretty clear that you can't, you can't find a successful person who uses drugs for 20 years. Um, now, well, unfortunately, I, I disagree. There are those. They're well, Dr. Carl who, Hart. Who, do you know who he is? Okay, no. he's been on Joe Rogan. He's he's a he's a doctor, very well known. Has books out. He he uses heroin and uh, does drugs, and he claims that uh, we're looking at it the wrong way. Um, and he's you know he's got I don't know millions of followers on social media, and he his interviews seem very. I mean. He'd be a very easy person to listen to and think, oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I think that makes sense. And kids see people like him talking and it just goes counter to what you and I are trying to do. Well, no, that, but that's what I mentioned. So the, the child who's interested, the young adult who's interested in using this will find that right. guy. And then they're like, right. oh, I'm going to be right. that guy. And, and, and the, 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 I, I really just like people like that. A well, lot you should look into him. You should dishonest. look into him because he's 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 huge. I mean, he's he's. He's out there and he's got a huge following and he's on all the top podcasts in the, in the world. And, um, he's very controversial and he's in your face and he's good looking, you know, he's, he's, he's built, he's, he just doesn't look like your traditional drug user, but he talks about using all different types of drugs daily. And it, it says it helps his quality of life. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, good for him, you know, and, and, but I've met people in my DEA career that, that used scientifically impossible amounts of, of drugs and we're just, yeah. but you know, everybody else. For, the, for every person like that, there's 99 Correct. more who are going to be destroyed. And, and so to me, those people are being very intellectually dishonest because he's not talking about all the people, all his friends who didn't make it, you know, like right. he did. And so one of the powerful messages I have throughout my presentation, none of us knows how it's going to impact us. And I will mention that there are some people that can use every drug out there and be just fine. I'm not going to find out. I'm not going to test this one brain <laughs> that either. I have against those me people. Me neither. So look at all. And I have a video I show of all the people that passed away. The beautiful, popular, yep. you know, people, and, and it's so famous. They they couldn't right. handle it. Len Bias, I, I talk about I remember Len Bias. That. You know, and people he, don't tell you, Rocky. He was the reason why I never did drugs. Because I was in high school when that happened, and I think it was I was I think I was a junior because I think he died in eighty three. I can't remember exactly. No, eighty six. Eighty six. Okay, 86, so I was a I was a sophomore in college, and when he died, that was it. I use Len Bias all the time as my reason why I I. I have a picture of Len. I have a picture of Len, this right. massively powerful young man. And I, I talk about the story. He, he signed with the Celtics and he was super yep. famous and going to be the next Michael Jordan. And his friends are so excited. They gave him cocaine and he stopped his heart. And he died two days later. So I tell the kids, if Len, Len Bias, mm -hmm. one of the strongest, most gifted athletes this country's ever seen, couldn't handle it. What? How in the hell can any what of you, you think somehow you in your mind think that you're going to handle right. it? Right. And then and the kids and, and I'm telling you, Jeff, the kids listen. They they applaud me at the end of these these presentations. I get applause. Mm -hmm. I do a drug presentation and I get cheered because I make it simple. It's about you, your choices. You are going to be the architect of your destiny. Mm -hmm. Nobody else. Nobody else is going to give you happiness and success. And if you want happiness and the success, you will respect your potential and you will respect your brain and you will not buy the lies and the false promises that you're going to enjoy using these chemicals. You're going to say no thanks. Do you and I'm telling you, I, I, and again, I'll never know if any kid changes their behavior because of what I do. And people will tell me, well, prevention doesn't work or assembly-based education doesn't work. No, I disagree with that because every single kid who leaves my assemblies knows a lot more about the consequences of drug abuse than they did before the assembly. What do you say, and I'll what do you take say to those, um, those parents or kids or people that basically say, you know, it, Rocky, it's less about choice and more about a disease. And you know, my, my dad was an alcoholic. My grandpa was an alcoholic and it's in my genes. And, and so, so thus I believe that, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic as well, you know, and there's, there's actually that mindset out there that people do think that it's, it's a disease. And I, I tend to think, again, I have no medical background in this area. I tend to lie on the, on the choice side a little bit more, um, the choice model. And, um, you know, I guess, what do you say to those people that really claim that they don't have a choice? That that it, that it's a disease. Well, you have it. You have a choice to start or not start using the first time. Right? Yeah, and so it's interesting. Just just yeah, and no, that's but that's that's right. the moment. That's the right. moment of choice. 
And I, so I guess yesterday I met a guy who grew up with an alcoholic family and the guy goes, man, I never use anything. So I, I, when I deal with kids who grew up suffering from someone else's substance abuse, there seem to be two paths. There's a path of, man, I figured out I'm never going to touch anything. And they're like religiously advocated. I'm never going to yeah, touch that anything. That was me. That was me. And then the other half is they, they feel like they feel like they have, that's just how you live. And they, so I'm actually getting counseling and therapy now because after so many of my assembly, after every assembly now, I'm getting kids coming up to me, sobbing, crying. They lean in, they hug me, they thank me. And then they share with me some abject misery that they're living because of someone else's drug mm. use. And, and I tell the kids in my assemblies, I talk about the crime. You know, I make the point that drug users don't go work at McDonald's. They sell their bodies, they sell drugs, they commit mm -hmm. crimes. And I tell the kids, you all know some kid living in poverty because the parents spend all their money on substances. You all know kids neglected, having to raise themselves because the parents are substance abusers. And then you all know kids who've been abused because mom gets angry when she gets drunk or dad gets angry when he can't hide. And then I say, look at me, look at me. And all these huge audiences, they all do. And they go, if you're living any of this, it's not your fault. It's not your damn mm -hmm. fault. And if you are living this, please lean on your school counselors, go to your teachers, seek help. Because they, they will show you a different path that does not have to be your future. And if you don't seek help, there's an elevated risk that you will repeat this in your families in the future. And that, that generates all these kids coming up to me. I'm a stranger to these kids. And they come up and they're sobbing and they're hugging me and thanking me for helping them understand it's not their fault and it doesn't have to be their future. So how we message, I mean, this is, this, I've gone to Africa, South America, Asia, I, I go into prisons with this program. I've talked to Marines with my program. And at the end, they're all cheering, giving a little, I choose, I, this little silly hand sign I use, I choose. And this, this message that I've come up with resonates across international boundaries, demographic right. boundaries, racial boundaries, language boundaries, because I'm talking about some basic, basic realities of being a right. human being. You make the choices in your life. And if you think you can make the choice to use drugs today and walk away, then look at all these other people who thought the same thing and weren't able to walk away. Yeah, I, I tend I think we tend to think that these are like American problems. And um, I was in um, I was in Honduras, actually scuba diving with my son. My youngest son and I are certified, so we dive all the time. Um, sorry, timer went off. Um, and um, and I was down there just talking about people always ask me what I do. And so I go into my little dialogue about what I do. And, and immediately it's like, oh yeah, my brother-in-law died of an overdose or my mom's addicted to, to, to drugs and stuff. And, you know, in, in that area, it's primarily cocaine and marijuana and alcohol. Those are the three biggies uh, where I was at in, in Rotan. Um, so I have a question I have to ask you and I've been, I wanted to ask you this. And I think this is a nice little pivot because we've kind of talked about this topic now. Um, this is coming. It's already here. Uh, if, if, if we as advocates haven't kind of, um, embraced this and learn more about it, then we're being naive, but what's your thoughts on the research and the momentum towards psychedelic plant-based medicine? Uh, I'm not going to call them drugs, but plant-based cause you could drugs is a pretty subjective word, but in regards to mental health and mental wellness and you know, this, the, the evidence was there in the seventies and the war on drugs basically put all that you know, in a lockbox. And now it's kind of, there's a renaissance in specifically psilocybin and some of the other drugs that are not mind altering. Um, it, it's, I've never done them full disclosure, but I'm also very curious in regards to how they can be an asset to mental health and mental wellness without being a detriment because people are going to look at them as drugs. And what's your thoughts on that? Because I, it's coming. I mean, some states are already starting to think about or legalize the use of psilocybin, microdosing psilocybin for, for specifically mental health. Um, you're going to, you're going to well, get kids look, eventually going to ask that question at an assembly if they haven't already. No, no, I get yeah. it all the time. Uh, this, you know, and, and I'm all for it. I mean, my simple answer is I'm all for it under medical conditions, under right. controlled research right. conditions. So, you know, when I, when I address, I have a difficult challenge. I live in, in, in California. I have to go stand in front of thousands of high school kids and try and tell them that marijuana is actually harmful to them. That's not no, an easy, easy task. It's easier in Iowa because you know, it's I mean, illegal still. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm on the, I'm on the front edge of this. Right. And, and, and I do it in a, in a very, you know, honest way. And I said, look, you know, when I go to schools now, kids will say, well, but it's medicine. And I go, yes, it is. I lost a sister to cancer. I have another sister suffering from cancer. And both my sisters, while I was an active duty DEA agent, discovered that cannabis products helped them with their cancer symptoms. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Right? And I make the point that if a teenager has a medical diagnosis in California and a recommendation from their doctor for cannabis, then I'll accept its medicine. 
everybody else is using it as an excuse to, to get mm -hmm. stoned. And, and so I'm all for the research, but I'm already hearing from kids saying, well, they're saying, you know, the mushrooms are medicine, so I can go use mushrooms at the right. party. And so again, it's, it's schools now, you know, they'll try and squeeze my presentation into 45 minutes. And I'm actually turning schools down now because if I don't get an hour minimum, you know, because everything that's in my presentation, in my opinion, needs to be there. And there's so many new developments right. that my presentation just has to keep getting right. longer and longer. So that the challenge to me isn't accepting that these natural substances might be miracle medicines. That'd be amazing if, if MDMA or, or psilocybin turns out to be some kind of a magic, you know, aid for PTSD, right. let, yep. let's say. That'd be great. Right. But the problem is we have to be careful, again, how we message it, because the population that wants to abuse the stuff looks at those headlines and goes, oh, well, if yep. it's being studied for medicine, it must <laughs> They're be waiting for validation. Yep. yep. They're, seeking, they're seeking a rationalization right. and a validation for their use, right? And again, so it all comes back to information. Right. And my, my meta message, it's all crap. If you're using alcohol or any other drug from 11 years old till 24, 25, you are changing how your brain is working while it's trying right. to develop. And science is discovering on a global level. If you do that, you change how your right. brain develops. And if you don't care about your brain development, then there's nothing I can say to you. But if you do care about your brain development, then you're going to postpone the drug use. You know, I about marijuana, I'll tell the kids, if you want to use weed, wait till you're 21 in California. Wait till you're 21. Wait till you can use, wait till right. it's legal and you can use it responsibly. Don't use it now when you're going to damage yourself. And I think there's a, talk about alcohol, man. We could have a whole show on that. Uh, it just absolutely drives me yeah. nuts how just readily accessible alcohol, it, not just, I don't mean accessible as in physically, I mean, just in the marketing uh, just the day to day, uh, you know, parents coming home, cracking open a beer in front of their kids, you know, and this is somebody that was an alcoholic coming from an alcoholic from, for a long time. Uh, in two weeks, I'll be five years. I, I don't call myself sober because that implies I'm in some, some fight with alcohol. I'm not, I just don't drink. It's that simple for me. Um, but I think there's a sober movement out there and I think it's very encouraging. Um, I'm a not, I'm a non-alcoholic beer drinker and, you know, five years ago when I quit, Oduls was like the only option. Now there's a whole culture of NA beers. I mean, every I was out for dinner last night and I went to a, a restaurant, um, a Korean food restaurant, and there was like three NA options. We were in Rotan scuba diving, and this is amazing because normally when I'm overseas, they encourage drinking. Um, but they had an NA option in Honduras, which is just jaw dropping. Um, and so I think that's encouraging. I think kids now, younger generations, I think the statistics do show that alcohol uses have dropped. But the problem is, Rocky, as you know, it's replaced with other things, um, specifically vaping. Uh, marijuana uses up uh, a lot. But I, I think alcohol usage for Gen Z is actually lower than it was when uh, my generation was that age. Yeah, no, I, I've seen some of the surveys and things. I've seen other surveys, though, that talk that adult alcohol consumption yeah, went up during the lockdowns. And then oh, it did for sure. 100%. percent and the percentage of families who permitted their kids yeah. to drink with them went up dramatically yeah. as well. But, you know, alcohol, unfortunately, is it's another drug that we 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 sent the message that it's not right. harmful and and we're not even talking about it, right? So I mean, we're, we're, we can barely get it out in front of the kids to warn them about fentanyl. Right. And again, this is my yeah. world, right? I'm in this challenge. I can barely get in front of kids to warn them about fentanyl. Never mind, you know, marijuana, alcohol, and the, the vaping. So it's it's a real challenge if we get this one little window of opportunity. And okay, if I get a 90-minute assembly, and many schools now are giving me 90 minutes. That's great. That's it. That's it. It is great. And I can give a very complete message. Right. But that's it for the year. Right? And so the entire rest of the year, those kids are going to be exposed to the social media, the movies, the TV shows, the TikToks, their, their friends, and telling them, hey, look, this is awesome. Party on. Are you familiar right? with um, so, Rotary International and their uh, action group for addiction prevention? You know, people talk to me about this, these different groups and, 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 and people are aware of me. I think a lot of people don't, they don't believe in what I do. They don't like what I do. They don't like my direct messaging. So I'm, I'm pretty much on my own, you know, and, and, and if I really, like, I've got huge buy-in from a lot of very senior school educators who tell me, man, I've never seen the kids listen to anybody like they listen to you. And then schools, a couple of giant middle schools, the principals told me I changed their schools with my one hour. The reason assembly. I bring this up is that and, and you, you need to get hooked up to, I'm on the board of the Rotary uh, Action Group Addiction Prevention. I just got on the board last year. Um, and no, yeah, they are trying to eradicate addiction just like they did polio. And they're, they're, I mean, they're all in. Rotary's very, as you are, very well connected, very well respected. And um, I'd like to introduce you to Larry, who was on my podcast last week. He's the North American chapter president. Um, but they have a thing called Project Smart, 
and the acronym SMART, I won't go through it all, but one of the areas is education that you're talking about in school systems. And they've got like a 17 year program starting with kids all the way from the early grades all the way through. Cause he, cause Rotary's did done, they're so research-based. I mean, they, before they went after addiction, they did a huge research on how they eradicated polio and thought of ways they could then take those similar um, processes and approaches and see how they could do it with addiction. And one of them was a continuous, regular inter, you know, intervening along the educational uh, road for kids because it's pretty clear. And, and what you're doing is amazing, but to go change a culture or generation sending in a motivational person, whoever it is on any topic for one time a year, like you said, for an hour and a half, you know, that may, that may grasp some kids, but to really change the fabric of a generation, it's going to take continuous work each grade as they develop and learn and their prefrontal cortex gets more close to being fully formed. Um, so I want to introduce you to, to Larry at some point, Rocky, because I think, I think what you're doing is amazing. It's awesome. Certainly we need to support more people like you and, and get you into not just more school systems, but get people to understand what your agenda is um, and your approach, um, which seems to be very authentic and genuine. Uh, I can't say that against everybody out there doing speeches in high schools and colleges. Um, but anyway, I just didn't know if you knew, knew anything about Rotary's, um, Rotary's. Well, no, I don't. I, I would love yeah. the introduction. But again, my challenge is I can barely get schools to give me an hour. And I agree completely. These kids deserve so much more. What I do, I don't even argue is very yeah. effective, but it's the best I can do right. in an hour that I'm given. Schools are not in a place where they're going to give up dozens of hours of instructional time for these programs. And that's are they the getting challenge. better, though, than they that's were five years ago? Are they getting better than they were, say, five years ago? N not really. I mean, it's still it's 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 almost as hard for me to get in schools mm. today as, as it was five years ago. Because again, they have so many mandates, right? There's there's so many things that schools administrators have to do in the limited instructional time they have. And so, you know, it's going to have to come from above. It's going to have to come from mandates at the state level or even the federal level. If you want our education money, you know, we're going to pay for these many hours and then bring in programs like the one you just described. That's amazing. And so, but, but to the people who criticize what I do, and there are many, hmm. um, that it's, the kids don't listen in an assembly and you can't do a one-off. And I hear that all the time. Well, if I were trying to, re if I were coming to you saying, Jeff, I'm going to replace your six inter six session program with my one hour. Well, that'd be right. ridiculous. I'm not doing that. I'm replacing nothing. Good point. I'm going into schools that are literally, and many that are literally doing nothing to educate their right. kids. And my argument is what I do, however limited it is, is infinitely better than And you're nothing. not taking away, so you're again, not taking you're away talking. anything from what they're doing. You're adding. Right. And that, you know, exactly. So, so the schools, the schools that actually are using these other programs, I exactly, I'm not trying to cancel what they do. I just want to offer a different voice, a different perspective. But honestly, the majority of the schools that I'm visiting are doing little or nothing about this. And so we, we have lots of societal options, these multi-session programs, these longitudinal programs. The problem is they're not getting in the schools. And that's where the, that's where you have a voice, right? And that we have to get to our political level, right. our leaders, and say, this is not going to happen in the schools unless you mandate it. Stop saying it's not going to work. Stop saying the kids don't listen because they do. If you message properly, they do listen. And if we could, if we could reach the kids every year, I really believe if we could start educating kids about substance abuse in, you know, first grade in a very light, gentle right. way, and right. then, you know, intensify it as they go through school, I think we'd see a huge reduction in the number of people initiating drug use. They would understand it's toxic, it's uncontrollable, and it's not worth it. Are we going to stop everybody? Of course yeah, not. And of course, the, the not. real validation is what other options do we have, man? This is all hands on deck. I mean, this is such a severe point in our history of our country I mean, where we go from here. Um, and that's where if you follow, you know, if you follow where a lot of the emphasis, especially in the infrastructure is just keep adding more rehab facilities, just keep adding more recovery centers. And I'm like, man, I just that's a bandaid on a on a gaping wound. Um, and we need to find a way to heal up the wound and then prevent the wound from happening, well, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll, I'll finish with this. You know, there's a quote I throw up in my presentations and it's from Desmond Tutu. And the quote goes, you know, I don't want to just keep pulling people out of the river. I want to go yep. up river and try to figure out why people are falling in. Yep. And so that's really the, the, my foundational philosophy. I, I, I don't want to wait until your child um is suffering an addiction or or in handcuffs because they were selling drugs to get their own drugs to offer them help i want all of our kids to have the
the basic information about drug abuse before they receive that first offer from their friends. And, you know, I, it, the kid will make the choice the kid, the kid makes. It's our responsibility to make sure they have the information, and we're not doing that. As a society, we are not ensuring that all of our kids understand the consequence. And yes, many will still make the mm -hmm. bad choice. But um, it, it, for me, it's a sin. It's, I'm not a religious guy, but yeah. it's a sin as a society that we're not giving this education to our kids. And in so many other areas, right? Drug use is where I have expertise. Drugs is where kids listen. And, and so I'll keep pushing it. But I, I'm happy to have the connection with you. And I'm very proud of you for the work that you're, you're doing. So does this take a toll on you? Oh, absolutely. I'm, like I said, I'm going to therapy. Yeah. I'm going to therapy. I don't think I, people I realize that. People don't realize the toll it takes on being an advocate. I started crying. I was a local high school and I did four assemblies. Oh man, day. that's exhaustive. And, and after each <laughs> it is exhausting, but that's how, that's what they wow. set up and I accepted. Uh, but the, the, the kids would come up to me after each assembly crying and sharing their pain with me. And then this one little girl came up to me and, and told me how this hideous story, I, I won't go all details, but her mother was a heavy drug user. And at seven, she was uh, sex trafficking her own daughter. This little 15 year old's telling me how she was sex trafficked at seven hmm. and how she was given to stay with an aunt who stabbed her while the aunt was overdosing out of her mind. She stabbed the seven-year-old and died. Uh. And this little seven-year-old girl. So this girl's just telling me this. And then, you know, five minutes later, I'm back in front of another crowd of teenagers. And I started crying. I just had to stop. I started crying during my assembly in front of 500 high school kids. But man, think of the, think of the and trust. I, and I said, look, I, I guess I'm think sorry. Think of the trust that these kids have in you to tell you something like that. And they've never met you. They're not even telling their closest friends this stuff. That's the power of vulnerability, know, man. So when people say it doesn't yeah. work, I agree. Yes, because those, those kids are, I'm reaching yep. some kids. And so I have two purposes now. I see two, two purposes in my work. One, my main goal remains reduce the initiation, reduce the initiation of drug use. It's my choice to start using or not. Once you start using, you lose the choice. And number two, I've discovered this huge population of kids suffering silently from someone else's drug abuse. And I connect with them and I tell them it's not their fault in a convincing mm. way. I had an 11 year old girl, true story. 11-year-old girl came up to me in a fifth grade. One of the districts had me talk to fifth graders recently. 11-year-old girl came up to me crying, hugs me, thanks me, goes, thank you. And I go, why? You taught me it's not my fault. What's not your fault? My dad's abuse is the beer and it's not me. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, a, that's this little girl. And so, um, anyway, but it's, if I, I tell the kids, I could stand here and, and turn on a DVD and sit in the back of the room and claim I educated you. That's not what I'm doing. I'm bringing me hoping that one of you listens. Hmm. I hope one of you listens. And at the end of these long assemblies, they clap and cheer. And, you know, I, I make the joke, they're happy I'm done talking. But actually, I think, you know, they, they, they're they really respectful back to me for talking to them in a way that they can understand. Well, I can tell you, as you're talking, I was thinking about um, an opening story in my book. Um, and I'm not sure if I've ever given you a book. Um, no, I, I, I'd like to I, read uh, it. I had a story here um, where this kid comes up. I was talking to a class. Uh, what, what grade was it? I, I wrote this book two years ago. I don't even remember writing it now. <laughs> um, I think it was a like a seventh or eighth grade class. But this kid walked up to me. He was very well dressed and he had tears in his eyes. And it was after I gave a talk and it was maybe 15, 20 kids. It wasn't certainly the audience that you're speaking in front of. But the kid then walked up to me and this is with other kind of people around him. And he handed me a piece of paper. And the note, here it is. The note said, thank you, Mr. Johnston, stay strong. And so he was telling me to stay strong because I was crying in my talk and everything. And then he told me later that at 14, he had already been in rehab. And that's how I start my book. And I got chills even telling the story because I remember the look in the kid's face. And I'm trying, there's the other kids lined up to ask me some other questions. And the first kid that came up just looked me in the eyes and gave me a note. And I opened it up and it said, thank you, Mr. Johnston, stay strong. And I thought to myself, He's telling me to stay strong. We have a lot to learn from our kids. I'm, I'm at that moment that changed my life. And that kid didn't realize that that thing he did, that subtle little note he did changed my life. I like to think I'm changing lives going to schools, but I know you walk away from every presentation, Rocky, a better man. And you have ups and downs each presentation. You cry, you laugh. But I have to think it's a net positive for every one step back. Maybe some faculty or some teacher says, hey, it's too strong, Rocky. You have two or three steps forward. Or maybe it's 100 steps forward because you have so many kids that say so many great things about what you do. And that's what keeps you and I going. Uh, the naysayers are gonna, or naysayers. The people that uh, have different agendas have different agendas. But there's something about some kid walking up and hugging you and just saying thank you.
I, I can't, I can't tell you what that means. No, I uh, no, you're right. It, you know, so for me, like I'm getting therapy to try to process the pain, but it's also highly motivational, mm -hmm. right? So it's it, it's a it's a it's a complicated thing that we're trying to do, and and you know we can't save these kids from the pain they live in, and you know the, the, the what society's done to them. But if we can through our efforts, you know, get some to make better choices, then we're going to prevent a lot of pain. And so that's really you know I'm I'm in pain prevention. One last thing before and, we wrap uh, up, because this has been a, yeah. one of the fastest hours I recall doing a podcast. This has been great is you take somebody like, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a world-renowned individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I, I, I do too. I, every time he's on a podcast, man, I, he, I move him up to the top. I've read all of his books. I haven't read his most recent one, The, the Myth of Normal, um, but I pretty much know what's in it based on listening to his podcast. He's pretty convinced all addiction results from childhood trauma. And that's his, and if you don't know it, you just don't remember it. And I like, I look at my, I didn't grow, I grew up in a leave it to beaver house. So I, I had no childhood trauma. I had childhood things that were traumatic, but I wouldn't say I was never sexually abused. I was never hit by my parents. I never saw my parents drunk. So I, I can't say that I grew up in a traumatic household, but by 19, I was an alcoholic. And by 25, I was a compulsive gambler for 20 years. So I, I had addiction predispositions for addictions, but I wasn't predisposed to it from a standpoint of uh, you know, you know, from, from that perspective. So I guess that's always been really something that's been out there for me. I, I, I just struggle with is like, is it, is he correct in saying that all addiction is based on childhood trauma when I know in myself, my addictions weren't. Well, how do you, I mean, it, it's interesting. Very complicated, it is right. It is. Because your environment, your environment, your environment, maybe you didn't have the traditional adverse childhood right. experiences, but maybe you had others. Maybe there were, there were expectation levels in your family. And certainly you grew up with, with right. you grew up with an alcoholic family. So for you to say that you didn't suffer right. childhood trauma growing up with alcoholic parents, there's a disconnect. Maybe I there. repressed it. Maybe yeah, I just don't did. remember. That's what, that's what I'm saying. You don't, in your mind, you're like, well, I didn't get beaten. So it wasn't that bad. Well, you know, I was, I was helping, I was, I, I teach down in Mexico and I was doing an intervention with a family in Mexico just a couple of days ago. And I started crying about my own issues with, you know, seeking my dad. My dad died 20 years ago and I seek my dad's mm. approval, you know, and he was a doctor and tried to save the world with his practice. And I'm out there trying to save the world with, you know, with <laughs> right. my work and it, and it takes a personal right. toll. So I'm going to challenge your assertion that you didn't have childhood trauma. And I, I do sort of agree with Dr. Mate. And I think that a, an adolescent who is for whatever reason, healthy inside and strong inside is at much lower risk of using Oxycontin or fentanyl or Coke and discovering, oh, that kept me out of my right. pain. The kids who today in this massive population of kids who have anxiety, anxiety, yeah. that that's an adverse childhood experience. And if they discover some of those kids that they discover that being drunk or drugged makes them feel calm, then they're at greater risk for, you know, continuing to use self-medicating and ending up in addiction. So I think that the, the, the idea of, of saying that you had to have been beaten to have had adverse childhood experiences is, is, is too narrow. Let me ask you this question. And I keep thinking, I mean, I may keep you on for another hour. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So you just brought up something that made me think of something. Um, so do you think it's possible that we are looking at this from a completely wrong perspective as a society? And let me tell you how I'm setting this up. Let's talk about, say, anxiety or attention deficit or even depression. I think it's tempting for us to say little Johnny has attention deficit, but little Rocky doesn't. And so little Johnny needs a little more attention because he has a hard time focusing. And when he gets older, maybe he'll take Stratera or Adderall. But little Rocky doesn't have attention deficit. I think, or somebody has anxiety and somebody doesn't. I think is it time for us to say we all have attention deficit? We all have depression. We all have anxiety. It's just some are zero on the spectrum. Some are 10 like me. Instead of saying somebody hasn't, somebody doesn't. Why don't we just say we all freaking have anxiety? I mean, show me a human that doesn't have anxiety. I, I would argue that we all have attention deficit. We all have troubles focusing. And again, how do you, how do you describe attention deficit? Well, you add the word disorder and all of a sudden now it becomes acceptable. But I, that's my that's my philosophical problem I have with this whole template that's out there that we I think we need to almost peel back the layers even further and go back to how we even define what anxiety is. Give me a break. Show me any human being that doesn't have freaking anxiety every day. We all do. 
So why, why do yeah, we well, say I some have, kids have, have it and some don't? Well, I, I, I have personal experience with this too. In 2011, I started working with wounded warriors here in San Diego. A bunch of Marines came back from Afghanistan really chewed yeah. up. And so I started volunteering at the Naval Hospital teaching sports to these guys. And I got you know, exposed to them and their, their world and the PTSD and the labeling. And the, the, the vast majority of the, the wounded veterans I met with are pissed off at PTSD. Yeah. They don't like right. me. I, they don't I like would be me. too. I would be and, too. And everybody has post, and their point is everybody has right. post-traumatic stress. You could have a car accident. You could have witnessed a crime. Everybody has post-traumatic stress. But what the what our society decided to do, if you're struggling right now from, from a normal human response to, to stress, we're going to call it a disorder. We're going to label yeah. you disorder. And that's got to change. And and that led a, that led a lot, a yep. lot of wounded vets to self-harm right. and to giving up on life because they now have been told you have a disorder, not, hey, dude, everybody is is wounded and confused yep. emotionally after things like this but don't worry we're going to work you through it just like everybody yep. else so again one of the messages i try and cram in my hour and someday i'd love for you to come to one of my oh i will i certainly I, will I'm, i'd I'm love to i'd love to but i try to tell the kids everybody's got yep. pain everybody's right. got low self-esteem at times everybody's got anxiety you're not right. different and the thing is if you use chemicals to try to escape there from you that, go look what happened to there all these other go. people boom yep and uh, that whole so, disorder you know, word, we're on the same that whole path, disorder word, Rocky, I don't allow anybody to use attention deficit disorder around me. They just don't. It's attention deficit. We stop there. Just call it what it is. Why is it a freaking disorder? For me, it's been the best thing I had ever given to me. I'm not religious either. Um, but however, I got attention deficit in my bloodstream. I wouldn't trade. You couldn't pay me to get rid of attention deficit. Uh, it gets me in trouble. I'm comical around my friends. They laugh at mistakes I make. But it's the reason why I've never been depressed. Uh, I've been sad. I have depressive moments, but I don't have, I don't have, I don't have the time to sit around and feel sorry for myself um, for long periods of time. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast on PTSD. It's uh, Scott Barry Kaufman does the psychology podcast and he's a, he's into positive psychology. And he said, one way we could do this is call it potentially traumatic stress disorder, potentially traumatic stress disorder. Why, why do we have to just say it's automatically post-traumatic stress? Somebody comes back from a traumatic experience in, 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 in combat, and we just put a, the word disorder on it, and they're in a box. They're, they're labeled for the rest of their life. Why can't we say it's potentially traumatic stress disorder? It doesn't have to be post-traumatic stress. And I'm like, okay, reframing is a powerful, powerful tool that we don't use a lot. Enough. The Stoics been using it. They used it for, for – that's how Stoicism was built on the ability to reframe. I think there's something in this that as advocates, we need to do a little bit more research on ways we can present these labels and these narratives to children. They don't have to accept somebody telling them they look out the window and they're a big thinker that that's a disorder. We can call BS on that. Again, that starts with the parents at home saying, you know what? A doctor can label you, but you don't have a disorder in my eyes. You know, we do that with kids with autism. We do that with kids with other quote disabilities. We don't use certain words anymore, like retarded and things like that. We say special. We just, we change the terminology well, look, and that seemed to empower a lot of kids that are in these positions to think a little bit more confidently about themselves. Well, I, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with American psychiatric and psychiatric I'm not either. <laughs> right. In their DSM, they label marijuana an addictive drug. They have for right. many, many years. When's the last time you heard a prominent psychiatrist on TV warning our population about the addiction potential of, of cannabis? Right. They're not. They're right. silent. But I also saw a study in that compared, you know, how many different diagnosable syndromes there are in the new DSM. And it, you know, two or three versions ago, there were 200. Now it's over yeah. 500. So the, the profession continues to right. add labels. I mean, and they have a vested interest because if you add a label, you you can you get a billing code and create then a you solution. Can, you know, get your reimbursements. <laughs> yep. So no, I mean, and I'm not saying they're all fraudulent. Of course, right. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there's a financial interest. There's an there's a financial interest behind increasing the labeling rather than reducing yeah. the labeling. So our society again is pushing kids, and I, and I, I'll bring it all back to the social media, because what social uh, kids growing up social media, and you and I can't right. perceive this because we didn't right. grow up this way. But but the kids are growing up in a world where all they see is perfect right. other people. Everybody they see on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever is perfect. They don't right. have problems. So we have this huge population of kids, all of whom have problems, all of whom have problems to different degrees, different problems to different degrees and pain. It's nobody can become a child and, and go through adolescence without pain. Uh, but the world that they see is full of people who, who seem to have none. Good point. 
So now we have this massive right. population of kids who thinks they're deviant or yeah. broken or, or something or lesser than because we're letting them see this whole fake world and we're not teaching them, you know, from, from elementary school age, hey, it's, it's garbage what right. you see. Don't believe it. Everybody's got the same crap. You're normal. I had it when I was a kid. Right. Your, your kids are going to yep. have it. So let's talk about working through it in a healthy yep. way. Hey, listen, it's we're over an hour, man. This has been great. I, I'm going to invite you right now back on the podcast here in, in 2023 um, to continue on some of these topics and talk about some more of your initiatives. But how do people reach you? What's the easiest way for people if they want to schedule you to come in and speak at an organization or a school? Um, where are you most accessible? Yeah, well, I created a, a small website. It's my, it's my own, so it's not very fancy, but it's www.rocky, R-O-C-K-Y, Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N, dot C-O-M. And there's some videos. That's the easiest way for people talks, to reach out to you. And there's some photos from my work around the world, and there's a contact page. So I, I, I give away my program. So if, if anybody listening is, you know, sees what I've done and, and wants to take what I've built and, and run with it and make it better, um, I, I give it away because it, 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 I want more people to try to do what I'm doing. And until society comes up with better solutions, um, I argue that what I'm doing is, is infinitely better than nothing. So thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and, and to talk to your audience. And and I do look forward to talking to you. Yeah, again. I, I love you like a brother, man. I admire what you're doing. Um, there's no downside in collaborating. Uh, we need all hands on deck. Like I said, this is uh, this is past critical time right now. And um, we have time. Um, we have tools. But we got to start now. We have to we have to um, we have to dig really deep right now and figure out ways we can get these kids, get that ship righted and get that next generation coming up behind us uh, and the one behind them uh, to look at things a little bit differently. 